0: Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Ag Watchers. Uh, you've got myself, Matt Dalgleish, and Andrew Whitelaw, the usual... usual <laughs> God, I'm an idiot. Let's get going anyway. <laughs> usual two Muppets. Um, and um, we've got a guest. very excited about this guest. It's Gabrielle Chan. So she's a journalist and author, I guess, is the way I'd describe her. But she's probably more than that. Um, Gabrielle, thanks for coming on. Do you want to give us a quick kind of summary
1: of um, of who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I have been covering politics for a long time as a journalist. I grew up in the city and then about 25 years ago, I fell in love with a farmer, which was not part of the plan, and moved to a sheep and wheat farm uh, west of Canberra. Uh, so now I uh, continued my writing, but increasingly look at rural issues uh, and rural policy um, as part of my interests, so I try to mash together my experience in the press gallery with what's happening on the ground in rural Australia
0: and, and- your most sorry your most recent offering was a book called rusted off um, about this kind of country rural divide and, it, and stepping into the politics
1: side of it did you give us a rundown on what the most recent project is Uh, The most recent project is a book called Why You Should Give a Fuck About Farming. And that it wasn't meant to be called that, I have to say. Um, It was kind of a working question that I had in my head that I wanted to answer. And somehow it ended up on the cover of the book. Um, But the bottom line was I wanted to work out, um, because I had gone through... um, Journalism at a time when deregulation was happening, from the really from the 80s, from the Hawke Keating government. I wanted to um, work out what that had done to farming and what it means for rural and agricultural policy in Australia. And I thought it would be sort of pretty straightforward, but I found out once you pull a thread of a farm and work out what you might want in agriculture you quickly get to kind of very foundational philosophical questions about the way humans arrange their societies it's kind of fundamental uh, but that is in stark contrast with I guess the the narrative that I had um, covered over the last three decades which is you know Farming and food is just like anything else. It's just like any other business. And in some ways it is, but in some ways it isn't. And when I talk to rural advocates, they also talk about this, you know, um, duality around agricultural policy and how it should be treated. And and I guess we see that most in global agricultural policy, you know, the way Europe treats agriculture is different Including Brexit now is is changing the way you, the UK treats agriculture. The US has a, as part of a bigger kind of food farming bill, um, and then Asia is different again and changing. And all these things are changing rapidly. So I quickly found myself down a million rabbit warrens, and um, I've only just come up for air, really
2: it's interesting you meant a lot of that was about the the change and stuff as well like agri-politics is changing you know i imagine even since the 80s even even since my time like the number of people getting involved in agri-politics it's it's almost a generational thing do you mean
1: do you mean it's less uh less people are getting involved or more Uh, people are getting
2: involved well i think it's it's sort of two ways like there's less people getting involved at a at a sort of a and actual you know the lobby groups you know the wa farmers the new south wales farmers that type of thing but then there seems to be some people getting more involved but not necessarily aligned to an organization but i guess i guess the question is you know you have obviously will have seen that over the time as well and when covering politics and rural issues do you think that's like a major issue of agriculture getting its getting its voice heard in the the sort of the pillars of government
1: yeah well the standard um the standard narrative i think uh in farming advocacy was always that the um the nff and the farming groups used to be way more muscular in the in the parliament you know they would walk the halls of the press gallery and the and and the parliamentary offices and and that they had more leverage um, but i mean that's It's kind of a simplistic argument because, you know, the National Party, for example, had a lot more leverage. In the days, if you go back to the 70s and Blackjack McEwen, he'd just get people in a headlock and and would not relent until he got what he wanted. That's necessarily changed, and I think you saw that with the change that happened within the National Party over the move from... You know even the name moving from country party to national party trying to widen its appeal, but kind of losing people in the process, which is why you get all these little you know micro parties startups independents in rural places, shooters fishers farmers um, all of this is a kind of function of what's happened over the last thirty or forty years um, and so I think like I, I guess it reminds me of political parties generally. So the younger generations, my kids are in their 20s, they get much more switched on about a particular issue. They don't feel a need to join a political party, but they might get active on a particular issue, whether, you know, whatever it is, whether it's climate change or marriage equality or, you know, these issues capture people's imaginations. And I think that's happening in agriculture, I'd be interested in your views um, of the younger generations because I don't deal with so many younger generational farmers. I don't
2: know. Like, I think that the younger generation potentially doesn't have the time, or doesn't feel they have the time. You know, if you think about a twenty to a twenty to four year old who is in that process of of taking over the farm, he's he or she. Is, is learning about farming, learning about the farm, potentially trying to expand the farm, possibly having children at the same time, also going to the footy club or netball or hockey club. And and I think there is only so many times and so many hours in the day, but maybe their their father or mother is involved who is solely removing themselves from the farm, but is getting involved in agri-politics. But I, I guess a question is whether... They have the same views, you know, a, a 20 to four year old versus a, you know, a 50 to 70 year old when it comes to what is the best for agriculture. And that's, that's some massive gross generalizations there. But, but I've just sort of I've seen that a few in a few farming structures where you know the younger ones just feel they don't have the time and they want to concentrate on, on building a business as opposed to what they see as things that they probably can't or they feel they can't necessarily control.
0: I wonder too, um, Andrew and Gabrielle, whether like when you said before about is there more or less coming in, I think it could be less following those traditional channels. And like you said, you know, the the dynamic of what's happening even in the halls of parliament with people coming through, whether it's uh, national farmers or whatever, in those, um, I guess, recognised bodies, there might be less going through those channels. Um, but with the rise of things like social media and 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 people being able to, their message out there, even if it's a, a message that's not adhering to any party line or, or they're picking from multiple party lines and, and, and a classic swing voter type or they've only got one or two key agendas, whether it's climate change or animal welfare, whatever it is, that, yeah, that, they're, that they're able to get their message across if they've got, if they've got enough of a following, whether it's through you know, Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is they're using that they don't you know there's i think there's probably more involved but not in the not in the traditional channels anymore and i don't think they necessarily need to be um that you know that's the feeling i get um yeah and then there's ones that have a big enough following to make to make what they're saying count
1: yeah i i definitely think social media has changed things and um the rise of farmers on social media platforms like um, Twitter or, um, you know, the beautiful shots on Instagram and, um, and, and the sharing of information via Facebook uh, I think has really changed things and I think there's a, um, a real capacity, I think, to get more positive stories out. Um, what interests me is the balance between the positive and the negative and how you tell um, real stories about agriculture without uh, either going down the kind of tumbleweed we're all going to rack and ruin path or the overly positive, you know, it's all great and isn't this sunset fabulous and why wouldn't you want to live here? Um, I think the nuance in between is the stuff that interests me.
0: It's why, um, why a show like Backroads is uh, so popular, I think, because it is showing some of those stories. Um, I, I was interested, too, when you said about the, you know, the, the country or National Party in the earlier days and the dynamic around a very, I guess you'd call it a macho style of politicking... Um, with you know the reference to the getting people in the headlock, I'm not sure if that was figurative or whether they, that was actually what was really happening. I would, could imagine it <laughs> <laughs> could have possibly really been a, a bit of a manhandling episode, or what do they call it, a shirt front? Yeah, if you remember back to the Tony Abbott shirt front days. Um, but do you think, and I'm and I'm kind of referencing that series that's on currently, the misrepresented on ABC, looking at the rise of female politicians over the years. Um, do you think that? the increase in in politicians across and and even i guess female leaders uh, the likes of fiona simpson in the in the farmers federation um jessica do wallace you think, and yep, exactly do, uh, so do, do you think that that also is changing the dynamic of how emma like, germano yeah so yep. actually most it's
2: of a, a lot of the groups have generally now got got females in, in sort of leadership uh, positions
0: yeah, so that's what I'm saying. Do you think that? Do you think that's actually changing the way in which um, things have been negotiated at those upper levels?
1: Uh, it's definitely changing, um, but it remains change remains slow. Like, for example, I don't think that uh, it's an accident that Fiona Simpson has managed to muster the NFF into a position on climate change. Given her background, where she's come from, the way that she conducts advocacy um, and and persuades, I think she has been pivotal to that change in position. Um, And there's a... There's a question about power here, whether you, whether you change things from the inside and the outside, and I know from interviewing her that she has always been a believer that you've got to get in and change things from the inside, and that goes back to that question around how agricultural advocacy works and a lot of people throw their hands up in the air and say, oh, God, it's all going to shit, you know, why would I get involved in that? I either haven't got the time or I can't believe, you know, they're doing such crazy things. She's a big believer in getting um, inside an organisation and making change from there. Uh, And so I think women are having a real impact in all of those spaces. Um, And and not just, you know, in those key positions, but a lot of the committee positions are changing. Um, You know, they're getting drought positions because women have been involved in those those committees. And and obviously men are involved as well, but I think it has changed um, the dynamics you know the chemistry in those rooms, the way that that advocacy and persuasion is done, and you know that's the kind of gift of diversity, right? That's why diversity is a good thing because you get many different points of focus from many different people, depending on their backgrounds, um, and it's just a no-brainer to me.
2: And I think when when you when you look at it, I think that there's there's a lot of when things go wrong there's always a push for oh, we need to get on the streets and go down to parliament house and 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 be like the french but but we were talking with a guy called benjamin a few weeks ago who's a who's a french friend of ours and you know his his father's been involved in those type of protests which, which the french do on a on a fortnightly basis and um, but but the general view is it's a bit of fun but they never really get any change whereas you know, I guess it's that old saying, you know, rather be in the tent than pissing from the outside. And that probably is what makes the difference.
1: Yeah. And that goes to a fundamental kind of way of conducting politics. And you see that in political parties as well. You know, you get the George Christensensen's who get out there and fluff their feathers and make a big song and dance about particular things, whether it's China or, you know, free speech, whatever, knowing full well. That they won't change it and that they and possibly don't even want to change it, but it's the act of protest, the act of visible, you know, feather fluffing that that create attracts votes, at least he's standing up and saying something. Whereas the inside work is much harder to do. And and both of those forms of political involvement can be valid at different times, because sometimes you do have to stand out and call out bullshit, Um, whatever you see that is. I don't agree with any of the stuff that George Christensen says, but it's kind of a valid political tool. um, And that just goes to the way you want to conduct your politics.
2: But I guess politics comes down to brute force or diplomacy. And diplomacy takes a little bit more finesse. That, that, that some politicians don't necessarily have in spades uh, they're more likely to use a spade to hit something down than 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 use that finesse but so you but going back to to you as as an individual Gabrielle you you're, you're a city girl and and you moved to the country and and you so you've been in the country for what 25 years yeah so you've not quite got a street named after you but
1: you, oh, been, uh, uh, yeah,
2: probably not a local yet. Not a local yet. Hmm. You, you're just blowing. But w- what have been? We, what were like? We 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 Matt and I are very similar to an extent in that we are both. Uh, urban.
0: Oh, I'm more urban than you were in terms of your upbringing.
2: Well, I, I was from a rural area. I was I was always when I went to the city, I was always called a country bumpkin, or or a, or a chukter is the actual term. Uh, so I, that,
0: it's a, chuk- <laughs> a chuk- Is that like halfway between a chicken and a tractor?
2: I don't actually know what the word means, but it's a chukta is somebody from the countryside. And uh, but my country town I came from had a population of forty thousand people, but it was still considered to be rural, in the same way that a town in Australia who had a hundred people was considered rural. But anyway, I forgot what I was going to say there. Yeah, so you're, <laughs> saying about
0: how, you're saying about how you and I are more like Gabrielle. Yeah, yeah. So, so,
2: so, so we 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 come from the, the, the city, stroke town, and uh, we quite often get a lot of statements. You know, that's not how country people work. You know that, and we've one of the things that, like, my background was, you know, IT before I got into into farming, and and it's all about change. You know, it's all about looking at something and saying, well, actually, we, we can improve upon this. But we quite often hear, probably older generation again, is that's not the way it's been done. We've, we've done this for, you know, for so long. You know, wool's a good example. Like nothing's really changed in the harvesting of wool for, you know, 100 years, apart from the, the, the increase in the size of the, the, the comb. So I guess... How do you see that as sort of like talking again about the younger generation, which which we all are, apart from Matt. um, Do do you think that there's a change in the way that people are thinking, you know, again, they're going away from that. They're going away from that national parties to an extent. You know, we've got like we use Twitter a lot and we see a lot of people in my generation who are actively interested in in climate change. You know, you guys like your are Oscar Pierce, Dylan Hursk. Uh, Annika Molesworthy, Molesworth, Molesworth, mm. um, and then you've got other people in the gen- in the mixed generation. And do you, do you see more of that change coming through as a, as a generational issue, or or, or what? Are you, are you seeing change at your level?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do see generational change, and I think that's um, you know part of the stuff that I, I look at in the next book is is that. Uh, deregulation period and I think um younger generations have talked about you know really getting on board with with turning farming businesses into um less culturally driven businesses and more um I guess uh you know straight business um philosophy and and that so there's that thing Climate change is definitely changing generationally. And then every generation also has to deal with, I think, um, it was best, this is kind of best typified by, uh, I was involved in a progress association that was trying to change the streetscape of the local town. And, you know, a woman came into the the local newspaper office where I was working at the time and said, we tried that 30 years ago, it didn't work. (laughs) It's like, what about we try it again? that'd be a good idea. You know, maybe conditions have changed. It's this, um, it's, it's the balance, I think, between new blood, old blood, um, older people, younger people, that kind of creates this magic formula where, where, uh, you know, you get progress. And, and you need progress, I think, in any business in any community. And sometimes that progress is good. And sometimes it's bad. But I actually have incredible optimism, I think, about younger generations. I think they are looking things um, through fresh eyes. Uh, Particularly, we're talking about social media before the rise of social media has has allowed this kind of communication of what farmers do. Um, There's a, a, a Twitter account that I watch, Farmer Renee, who explains... You know, a lot of the processes that she's doing on farm explains why she's doing what she's doing. Uh, in very kind of, um, I think she she must be a scientist or something as well. Yes,
2: agronomist. Yeah,
0: agro- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, oh. yeah.
1: So she so she's explaining it in a way that the non-farmer can understand, and that type of communication I think is really exciting in the ag space.
2: I think like social media, like social media has been a driver of a lot of farming and, and outside of farming and it's been a driver of a lot of change but i do think it's got its pitfalls oh, you? The, the, the way i sort of see it is that you know i was, I was talking to somebody about it yesterday and it, in relation to vaccines and and a few other sort of contemporary issues is that in the past there used to be a, a sort of every village had its idiot but nowadays, one of the issues is that... Some every... some
0: podcasts have two. Some podcasts have two.
2: Uh, but, but every village has got an idiot. But nowadays, in, in the past, that village idiot would just be sat in the corner of the pub talking to himself. Whereas now he's talking to the other village idiot in every other village in the world. <laughs> so you have this sort of groundswell mass of idiots who can communicate and spread an idea. And that could be an idea about, you know... Uh, how GMS cause you to, you know, your head to fall off, or or whatever, chemtrails, or or whatnot. Conversely, it also allows that that one village's genius to meet up with all the geniuses around the world. So it's a bit of a a balancing act between the, the finding, getting around the noise. But uh, I guess in in your new book, yeah, is. Uh, my my mother listens to this podcast, so I won't I won't use the title. Um, she doesn't actually. Uh, but why should why should people give a a, a monkeys about um, about farming?
1: Fig fig that I was fig. the other alternative. Um, people should give a fig about farming because farming, I think, stands at the um, at the interface of the world's existential problems, right? So um, food production, topsoil loss or not, water shortages or not, um, energy production increasingly is moving into agricultural areas for good or for ill. Zoonotic diseases, we're in the middle of a pandemic and zoonotic diseases, um, all the scientists say, will be an ongoing thing into the future. So there's all these big, big issues that um, farming either can, can contribute to or is affected by trade policy you know these are monumental foundational issues in the way that countries deal with each other in what's happening to the planet and farming is affected by all of them like not many other industries are like that i think it's i think it's, think it's exceptional in that in that way and so thinking about the way that agricultural policy affects farming is really, really important. And it strikes me as odd that uh, a country and an economy um, that s- supposedly built itself on the back of sheep doesn't think about farm. It's just kind of this void of policy, as far as I can see. There's no interconnected thinking about how, um, say, agriculture relates to rural communities There's no bird's eye view that um, goes over the top of Australia's national agricultural industry and and really looks at some of the themes. And so I guess that's what I wanted to do and just throw it all out there and say I don't know the answer, but um, I want to think about these questions and I want to chase it down a couple of um, rabbit holes and I want to see where I end up. And, you know, at the very least, I want to start a conversation about it. Um, and some pretty smart people might have some answers. That um,
0: you mentioned just there, and it was a question that was on my mind as you were discussing the book the first time around. Um, and I was wondering, is how much of the current pandemic, which you mentioned just before, and the I guess the change in, in some people's perceptions around um, what that means. I mean, it's, 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 it's I won't, don't, won't use the word unprecedented, but it's been a very different time since, um, since the world's been under, you know, struggle under this pandemic. Do you think that has actually, and I, I wonder, did, was the book project started pre COVID and now you've brought COVID into it because my impression, and it might not just be the people's view towards agriculture. It's also, I think people's view towards a range of other key industries, I guess. Um, you know, th- there seems to me to be a bit of a mind shift uh, that, you know, that, that people were saying, oh, we need to we need to have more control over these key systems, whether it's agriculture, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's, you know, because it's really exposed the reliance we have um, you know, when you look at how it disrupted trade and continues to sometimes disrupt trade, um, you know, and and the industries that you would have thought would have been pretty solid, you know, you've got people that have worked in an industry their whole life that now don't have a career if they're in that entertainment space, uh, you know, um, do, you, do you think that's changed the the perception of things like agriculture
2: podcasters, Matt, you know, no one's commuting anymore. So, you know, listener, listener numbers are down. Mm.
0: I
1: think, I think it has, the project was started before the pandemic, uh, but um, obviously it necessarily changed it. I originally I had thought that I would be traveling all around Australia and I had actually had a trip lined up um, to Europe as well. Um, to see my first grandchild and also interview some people over there about how the UK is exiting Brexit and how it was affecting agriculture in terms of natural capital and the way they're going to pay their their Mm. subsidies, Um, all that was thrown out the window. It became, I think, a lot more philosophical in the sense that, you know, I was watching all of these... um, uh, expectations and and um, understandings of the way the world worked crumbled, and so I think it changed that about um, about the way the book was both um, written, but also um, in in where it went. I I did think in when was it twenty twenty, I started interviewing people. Um, where are we? I can't even think where we are. My hard drive is full. Twenty twenty twenty, 2020, I started interviewing strategic people. They weren't so much in ag, but, um, you know, institutes like the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, they were the ones that were thinking about ag in national defence terms. Um, so so I think that the pandemic heightened that view amongst defence experts, uh, people who weren't specifically in the industry but see it as an essential industry. As far as food goes, I think unless there's empty shelves, you know, people go back to their lives. People have busy lives, you know, now the pasta is back on the shelves, the rice is back on the shelves, the toilet paper is back on the shelves. And so I thought it was going to change things, but it actually didn't. I don't think it's changed things in the in the modern consumer's mind. I don't think I, think, I, don't, yeah. I don't
2: think it's changed things domestically because domestically, you know, if you look at our food production, we produce more than enough calories for everybody to be obese. You know, we 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 we'll produce one ton per person. You know, we can eat nowhere near that volume but i guess if we look at it from from a global point of view like it does become an issue and we are seeing an issue in places like india which in the last couple of days uh, has had to reduce its import tariffs which were previously there to actually assist their farmers and and provide a better return to the farmers but they realize that we can't continue to support the farmers that way uh, because it hurts the consumer so so there is so there is this balance between you know, countries like us, who are large net exporters, versus countries which are um, which are sort of uh, net importers, large populations, low low productivity. You know, Indonesia is a fantastic example of that.
1: But the the India, I think the India reforms, agricultural reforms, had been on the agenda for a long time. That was the re- the same reforms, right, that brought Indian farmers out onto the streets. Um, Last year, yeah. Um, so, so there are other things at play in that in that um, in that dynamic as well. But I agree, you know, it does change the way that countries think about themselves. When we saw, you know, um, Vietnam stop uh, exporting rice for a time, so so the way all of that changes is interesting. Our domestic government in the last budget uh, came up with the modern manufacturing strategy. Because they realised, you know, remember at the beginning of the pandemic and no one could get hand sanitiser, no one could get masks. And so, you know, someone thinks, oh, this whole, you know, um, contracting out all of our functions might not be such a great idea in some areas. So what happens with that modern manufacturing strategy remains to be seen, that food is one Um, one of the six key areas that they've identified and I think that'll be more sort of advanced manufacturing than agriculture but that was the other thing about the book project like changing so fast and the thing about agriculture is you can it's, it's so open you can pick any narrative like I could have picked any narrative and you can find evidence to back it up. And that's yeah. the hard thing about agriculture, right? I could say we're all on the bones of our ass or I could say, you know, this is such a fantastic, you know, thriving industry and every every narrative in between. So and, that and was could, the you, hard part.
2: You could also ask that one, that one person in Northern New South Wales in 2018 and ask that person in 2020. Exactly. And, and, and the response again is, great and it, it's it's it, it is so changeable and that's and it that is interesting like like in australia we do have that we i don't like the term i always hate this term we're the best farmer in the world blah 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 like i obviously i spent a lot of time in europe and the french farmers were the best farmers in the world the scottish farmers were much better than the english farmers um the Welsh farmers were the best. Then it came to Australia and funnily enough, the Australian farmers were the best. You know, we're all just working with our conditions. One of the things that we are good at is that we have operated through some pretty bad climates, uh, like bad weather. We, uh, I, we currently talk to a lot of Canadians, providing them a little bit of advice on how to deal with a drought. Uh, a Scotsman who's never experienced a drought until I came here. And the reality is that they haven't had a drought there. Like a proper one since 1988 whereas in Australia in the last 10 years we've had like depending on what part of the state you are is uh, you know, three four droughts in 10 years so 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 the conditions are difficult and that's where you can get that narrative because 2018 Victoria was fantastic we had high prices we had good grain production New South Wales we had you know drought so and it, and it's hard to even like we and like I mentioned before the the the, the narrative is different between us as an exporter and uh, an importing nation. But we've also got a different narrative between states, and and you know Australia is such a large large continent. What 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 they think in the West is very different from what they think in in Tassie. So it's yeah, hard I to
1: discovered haven't. that. I <laughs> talked to a few <laughs> Western Australian farmers, and it's quite different. It's different <laughs> uh, politically too.
0: That's a good segue, actually, because I am going to query you. Given moving just slightly away from ag um, and into politics, because you've had such a, a long experience in the politics side, Gabrielle, um, do you think that this whole um, issue around COVID and, and and what's you know what's transpired, I guess, between federal and state and in between states, do you think that's exposed a little bit more of the problems around that system we have, of a federal state kind of system? Um, yeah, you know, like. Is there, an, is there a better method? We you know, I'm loath to say. Do we get rid of the states and just have a federal and a and a local government, or or do we you know get rid of the feds and just go back to just being states? Because it seems like um, at the moment we are just states uh, and not not very cooperative amongst each other. I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on on the dynamic that it's at play and what it might mean for the future.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's going to mean much change for the future in terms of um, actual structural change um, because referendums are hard, right? Yep. And I think if people were asked to vote on getting in the States right now, they would say bugger off, you know, like (laughs) maybe get rid of the feds. And, of course, you need a national body. So all of those things are in train. But I, I am interested in some of the systems that, deal with Australia as a in a more regional sense so in a bio regional sense so we used to have um you know catchment management authorities in New South Wales for example that would that I think um are maybe much more helpful in the way that we manage landscape which is has been you know was one of my um uh major interests in the next book and and I think that can play a part but all of these things of course overlap and and it can be get quite unwieldy um but I think I think the premiers you know this idea of service delivery which is essentially what the states do is we've discovered in the pandemic is really key and so I think Australians just would be loath to get rid of you know a level of government national I don't think is a possibility to get rid of um and states certainly after well not after the pandemic we're still in it um in this pandemic has kind of reinforced that people want service delivery from their state governments Mm. Uh, and you can see that in the popularity of those state premiers versus um versus the national government um but it's a bit dumb, isn't this? Like you know, Sydney versus Melbourne, New South Wales. Is is Dan Andrews better than Gladys And It's all a bit kind of um, pointless.
0: And it was a bit. Of, it was a bit of a cheeky question because I, I kind of yeah, looking at the Constitution, it's a bit, a bit of a tricky one to change it does make me like sometimes i look on the news and i think that maybe it's just a case that the states are still useful but the borders might be a bit wrong you know <laughs> or i'm I'm, you know, I'm sure there's people in the riverina that want to have their own you know, riverine state that covers some parts of like australia uh, you know victoria and new south wales or you know the, the people up in far north queensland wouldn't mind separating themselves from the rest of queensland um you know so, so maybe um you know that's I, I guess it's probably an equally as tricky a thing to get through but yeah, you know, there, there seems to be a bit of groundswell around maybe changing the boundaries
1: <laughs> yeah boundaries are hard though aren't they because they're a line on a map remember when we used to get drought funding by you know around exceptional circumstances and yep. you'd have a line on a map and the guy across the road wasn't didn't qualify you did or vice versa you know it's pretty pretty unwieldy and hard but I think farmers um instinctively understand the kind of bioregional concept because they can see where country changes um, oh, yeah. in their areas. and, and But, you know, um, convincing a politician or a public servant to do that would be a bloody hard thing.
2: But but going back to, to services and service delivery, like I, I've not been here long enough to really, really have a, a, a strong, fast opinion. I always think less... Less government is better, in my view. Uh, coming from coming from a place like Scotland, where I had to vote in the British election, council election, Scottish election, and European election. Well, not anymore. Uh, you had so many layers of government with a lot of people doing the same thing. Uh, but service delivery, like you you've got a foot in in both metro and and the the, the country. You're also not that far away from the city. If 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 we consider the Canberra to be a a city, uh, and there's more and more people moving out into those country areas, but the reality is, I wonder if there's a lot of people who are from the city who don't realise that services are not quite up to scratch compared to what they'd be used to. Are, are, have you in your area? Are you seeing more lifestyle changes moving out? Because you're what an hour an hour away from Canberra. It's not. Yeah,
1: we're, we're an hour and a half from Canberra and um, we are seeing, like, all real <coughs> estate is getting, real estate agents are getting hammered, I think, in country towns um, within a certain distance from major cities and that's certainly happening here. Um, we've got stock problems with houses. We just don't have enough for the demand uh, and I think that used to be the other way around um so so yeah there's that issue but i think city people generally understand that the services are you know pretty crap in rural areas in terms of what you can get you know we're 90 minutes from canberra i can't there's a train station in my local town of harden there's a train station in canberra there's not a line that runs between the two you can't commute unless you've got a car um I couldn't have my babies in the local hospital because they don't do that stuff. Um, And that was, what, 20-something years ago. So I think there is an understanding that there's a trade-off between lifestyle, real estate prices, and then services. And I think the only way that changes is to get critical mass in places. Um, And there's also a political element of that too, like options in terms of who you vote for, yeah. at a, at a federal level, um, we usually have three, three or four candidates. There's not, there's not great options. In other places you get 13 people running, you know, so, so there's that element as well. Um, But I think there is an understanding uh, definitely that services are not as good. We've
2: potentially, I wonder if there's a bit of a shift, you know, in the past we used to have, you know, a farm would have a high number of staff eh, working for them. You know, more and more we've seen automation to an extent, you know, bigger machinery, less and less staff requirements. So, you know, you just have to drive around anywhere in Australia and you see empty houses in in town. But as people move to those areas, maybe it, it does help create that critical mass. But the critical mass is quite different in that it's people from the city who, like you say, have different ideas about life. And, or not ladies, but life but different voting intentions, typically, and it does change the status quo quite a bit potentially. Um, If if it doesn't just become a bit of a you know a a ping pong, you know they move out to the country because they've been they want to get away from the city, and and then after two years they decide actually you know miss I want to go back to my. Thank you my, my latte sipping ways.
1: <laughs> We've got lattes here. We've got great lattes here. I think you I think you're right and there will always be some, you know, import export of people. The numbers are um I think the numbers, according to the Regional Australia Institute, is that people are moving out in similar numbers, but the difference is that people in country towns are not moving to the city as much as they have been yeah. in the past. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic. But some I can't remember the town now, this Victorian town of 100 people, it's got like 10, 10 or 12 people moved in in the last year since the pandemic, which... From the city, which is just that, has to change the dynamic, the way the town works, and the way that the politics happen,
2: and, and the ability to work from home. Yeah, you know, you you've potentially got people who are, well, let's be honest, more affluent moving into those towns, bringing cash. Like if you, Matt, you've you've driven when you have driven to the farm, you sometimes mm-hmm. drive through Malden. Yep. And you know that place there, like the house prices there have been high for years and you know there's great coffee shops and and whatnot and there's little antique boutiques all that type of stuff and there's a whole industry almost around servicing
1: holy homers basically oh. our our local um village at chugion they had they're selling four thousand dollar fire pits like what sure. is that There's obviously a change in the kind of socio-demographics of areas now, I think, that's happening. The interesting thing about housing to me is that state governments are going to have to get better at planning their planning policy because what happens now, and I know this is a thing for us, is that planning policy is formulaic. So you've got a certain number of empty blocks in a town, they say, well, you don't need more land release um, because you've got all these empty blocks. Well, people move to the country so they have more space around them so they might buy a double block. And they're never going to build on that other block, but they want it, you know, so they can have a pony or whatever. And that changes things. That changes things not only for the town in terms of not being able to get enough housing stock, but obviously has a big change on agriculture because if that's prime agricultural land around, around that town, if that's going to change what happens to land planning. uh, And I think that's a really interesting area.
2: A bit of land banking, like in in the UK, um, I met a fellow and he, uh, they had that sort of intergenerational investments in land. So they would buy land, blocks of land, big box of land that were five miles away from town Mm. and with the intention of within 50 years being able to turn it into an industrial estate or a housing estate and so they were doing it all the time just another five five miles out because they knew that that town would expand and expand and 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 so they're making astronomical amounts of money
1: well uh, yeah i've got a question for you guys What's with the land prices in agriculture? I think they're are, reflecting... are, are, they, are they reflecting the return <clears throat> or the capital oh, gain? That's... Is this the block or is this agricultural return?
2: Well, I guess like we we're not massively in in we don't massively conduct analysis of land. I would say that the land doesn't necessarily. Um, <laughs> equate to the productive capacity of the land in a lot of cases Mm. but that doesn't mean it doesn't actually uh, it doesn't equal the return because again it's that capital gains you know we've seen people in recent years got friends of mine who bought land and it's doubled in three years you know bitcoin maybe would give you a similar investment but there's not many hard and fast investments to do that Uh, there is a number of different factors at play like the overseas investors is one of them but it's not necessarily the biggest one either like like a lot of them are you know jimmy who wants that block next door and um, it's not came up for sale for 50 years so i'm willing to pay a premium for it because it's again it's a general asset they, they can they can see it as, as a longer term asset when, when we look at the overseas investors you know australia is a good place to park money it has no matter what we think of the politics, it has a relatively stable um, uh, government. It, there's, there's there's not much in the way of corruption, and then you compare that with other places that can invest, Africa, uh, Eastern Europe. You've probably not got quite the same ability, but also in a lot of those countries that you're investing, you don't actually have title over the land. So, so really is attractive to investing uh, as as a hedge for you know, other areas, whether it still continues. Look, we look at the UK prices. I think that's probably a more interesting question in in, in the coming years uh, in reference to what you mentioned before about um, a lot of those cap payments that they get. If they stop, what happens to land prices then? Because their land prices have got, you know, zero correlation with their productive capacity. It's just the land bank. You know, for 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 eighty percent of farmers, I would say, although that was just taken from the top of my head, but it's the general. That's that's what we sort of tend to think. Matt, you got?
0: Anything? Yeah, I was just going to say. I think in terms of the current on-farm productivity, I don't think they're probably reflective. If you if you actually run the numbers, there are a lot of places that are are going for more than what it would make sense for on paper. But I think part of the a part of the surge we're seeing, and it's probably been a decade in the making now at least, is that, you know, that kind of move or the change in dynamic, particularly some of the bigger funds, whether they're domestic or international, that as part of their broader portfolio, they are understanding the value of agricultural and real assets and, and they're in for the long, long haul and they can see that it's an industry that has excellent long-term supply and demand prospects um, but also the ability to, to generate that steady return. You know, if you look at you know cash- based assets or bonds at the moment are giving you bugger all in terms of a and they used to be the, the traditional mainstay of a, of, a, of a diversified investment portfolio would be you've got to have some you know low returning but steady income type streams you know that four to five percent type return and I think agriculture very much fits in that category uh, to be able to give you that regular, return, and, and, irrespective, irrespective of what's happening in the broader economic climate. You know, you can bank that one pretty much. So I think that's where some of that that kind of interest is coming. It's probably not going to be sustained for many years, you know, into more and more decades that this kind of growth just won't happen. But I just think we're in a phase at the moment where they're just getting themselves set up. That's and, what's driving some of it.
2: And many of those investors, especially the sort of the the, the pension funds, the only, the biggest concern that they have is effectively ensuring that they beat inflation or, or, mm. or, or achieve inflation and agricultural land. Australia really has more than done that in recent years. Like you say, whether it gets too hot is, is, is the next question, but, but I think it's also like, I think it's a good thing. Like we don't often talk about it on, on the podcast or, or wherever, but succession planning, Farm is one of the only industries where again it's generational where 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 the kids you know are assumed to take it over and i guess not all kids do want to take over the farm and i I think and some like i know some that have probably been pressured into going back to the farm where they don't really actually want to but this gives a fantastic opportunity these high prices to actually get out you know allow the parents to retire and have a bit of a nest egg at a time when prices are, are so incredibly high or, or even lease out of that land. Or, or in the case of New South Wales especially, uh, which has been through a couple of years of droughts, this gives you know, the opportunity for those farmers who might not be able to recover from the next drought to get out with, what's that old saying, exit with dignity and equity you know that that is that is one thing and it's I don't think it's a stigma to 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 leave the farm. You know I think it's you know it, it gives that opportunity to to do it at a, at a at a different pricing level. You
1: know. I guess hard to buy in though for young farmers, right? Mm. Higher the prices Sorry. rise. Um, and the other the other question is whether the kind of capital gain that's driving the market, you know, um, Lawson's, I think, is still for sale, last time I checked. That's right, yeah. Um, You know, that, that website says we're in it for the long haul, we're custodians, etc., cetera, et cetera, and then we find 10 years down the track, oh, the fund is up, you know, as expired, so we're selling it on. That has to be bought, surely, by another corporate. Like, mm. that changes dynamics, I think, and yet, you know, the corporates are also an, an opportunity for young farmers who aren't born to a farm
0: Absolutely. to get
1: in like it's th- these are such complex issues that I just find so fascinating in a policy sense um, but I am a weirdo in the I, but, but,
2: but I think I think you're right though I think on another point there is that you don't have to be farming to be in agriculture and have mm-hmm. a great career Mm. You don't have to own the land like I, I, I think like I could look like a lot of younger guys who have you know bought a piece of equipment, you know a specialized piece of equipment and then go out contracting and they make good good money. Uh, look there's, there's stuff like what we do like we Matt and I own a farm as well uh, together that we farm pigs um, but our, obviously our main income is is analyzing markets sat at a desk looking at spreadsheets. Yeah, um, we. Are, well, I speak for myself, but I find it personally engaging and and enjoyable. So there's a huge facet of different types of jobs that are available that don't require you to actually own a farm. And I think that's, you know, that's what people getting into agriculture should think is that it might not. Like I don't think it's. I don't. I personally don't think it's achievable for a young person who doesn't have intergenerational wealth to get into farming uh, as much as you can, people can sugarcoat it with different schemes and whatever. You, you've got the land price, you've got the machinery costs, you've got the ongoing costs and and you, you could be very lucky and, and get all that just before you have a rip snorter of a year. But likewise, you could invest all that and then have a drought year and then you're bankrupt. Um, so I think we should be changing the sort of the, the dialogue a bit to actually say, well, you don't need to own land. Like it's not a, it's not a stigma not to have land.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a fundamental thing, isn't it? And the mindset of people that they have to have land and the way that, Um, I think that's changing. That's also changing, I think, generationally in terms of, you know, do you have to own the land? Does all that capital have to be tied up or are there other ways to um, conduct agriculture? I think um, really interesting questions.
2: And maybe that's your next book.
1: (laughs) No, thanks. (laughs) But tell me, what is happening to the urea price, please? (laughs) Uh...
2: If, if you uh, if you listen back to a couple of our previous podcasts uh, i look, do I'm... it's it's it, like it's a largely in part one of the things with urea is that it's hard to get a handle on urea pricing in australia uh, because it's not like grain where you can say what's awb's price today what's glencore's price today you can get that price instantaneously uh, with urea you know if if it's just not as easy to find that that sort of quick transparent information so so we tend to work with a couple of organizations overseas to sort of get a modelled price into australia look and we do see that prices of urea have increased globally so it's not just a case of you know a lot of people are concerned about gouging on fertilizers the reality is it is factors overseas that are leading to the higher price and Look, one of the big things with it is is that we've got a big demand for urea. Because grain prices have been so high over the last year, everybody and their uncles are planting as much corn or soybeans or wheat as they can. So it increases that demand. But also because of the higher prices, they're more willing to apply urea because there's a there's a there's a, there's a return so you sort of see this relationship over time you see you know the corn price which is the largest grain crop in the world you see corn price rising so at the same time you see your real price rising then your corn price drops so your real price drops so the, the there's that relationship between supply and demand of, of cropping land but then there's also you know the cynic in me says is that thing of capacity to pay so if you've got a higher corn price well i don't i don't mind you know A little bit more urea, okay. It's $800 a ton, but you know, the the, the corn price is you know, $400 or or whatever it may be, and so it tends to be that capacity to pay. That's the cynic in me. And look, a lot of analysts who speak in the federalized industry say the same like it is partly to do with um, a capacity to pay. Well, and it's the same if anything, if you're going to extract as much as you can out of the person. And, and we did an interesting one last week with a potential urea plant in South Australia. There's another urea plant in Western Australia. Yeah. And so if either of those gets to go ahead of both, then that actually really changes the fundamental supply and demand picture because it means that you're not requiring to import as much, which means that you could then have a situation where you know you're saving the freight costs or at least some freight costs, a lot of the import costs, which which would help. And and that's where we think that, you know, we don't necessarily think that governments should be involved in markets, but we think government should be making it easier for, you know, businesses to 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 compete in that space, whether it's whether it's uh, fertiliser, whether it's uh, fuel, or or chemicals is 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 making it easier to operate within a whilst doing the right thing and doing it all above board and legally. I cutting yeah. corners.
1: Yeah, yeah. One of the things um, that I was really interested in the book is not just government policy though, but consumer demand. And Matt, I think it might must have been your graph in one of the one of the industry magazines that I saw where wheat price bumps along for the last couple of decades and meat prices going Oh yeah, um, yeah, up in a in a in a pretty sharp ascent. Um, yeah, so and that, I think it's an that, index.
0: Yeah, it was an index of the, yeah, the the meat prices versus the grain prices or something.
1: Yeah, Correct. and and how like I struggled with reconciling that with you know this um, de- public debate about eating less meat, and so the price signals don't somehow match up with. Um, uh, you know the public debate on what we should be eating. I think that, that that's
0: uh, a um, that's a domestic narrative though, Gabrielle. Is it? it? I mean, we have this. Yeah, well, we have this a lot where you know this discussion around, and it is the case and a trend in in Western kind of you know countries, high wealth countries, that there's a, a per capita move away from from meat consumption. Um, but when you look at a country like Australia, and we do focus a lot on what's happening in our domestic market, but for, for red meat, the bulk of the product goes offshore, you know. Um, and and so if you look at it from a global picture, um, the demand for meat from those developing countries, are, are, you know, still on a pretty strong trajectory, um, you know, and, and those types of consumers, you know, whether they're, you know, up and coming middle-class Chinese or, you know, Indonesians or, you know, anywhere around the world where they've got increase in per capita wealth, there's a pretty strong correlation between, that increase in per capita wealth and a switch to a more western style consumer behavior and that includes more consumption of red meat over grains and that 's a trend that 's not forecast to, to end anytime soon so if you 're looking at it from a, in our little bubble of Australia, you get kind of blinkered by i can 't see the wood for the trees, but the bigger right. the bigger global picture is that red meats are or well, meats of all types are, are still a very strong um, consumer trend the, know, the, the
2: trend. other thing we're finding as well is that grains are a victim of their own success in that our productivity increases every year by roughly what the consumption globally increases mm. by so the only thing that we have as an issue is that we continue to produce productivity gains which farmers and and agronomists think is fantastic and and that's good morally, is that we feed the world through these productivity gains. But what that does is it means that grain prices have tended not to really change substantially since the 1960s or 1970s because of the fact that the price has gone up, but the productivity has gone up. So we produce more per acre. So so there's question marks about whether that's the right thing to do. Morally, it probably is, because, you know, if we don't have productivity gains, then we don't feed the masses of the world, but it has held back price. But productivity in meat is probably, especially in Australia, is probably lower because we've actually got a lower flock and herd than we previously had. But I reckon we probably might have to give that uh, tie this up because uh, we've uh, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and you've probably got another two book, two books to write this afternoon, and um, you know we don't want to get in the way of uh, a, a distinguished offer.
1: No, it's been fascinating. I, I've loved it. As you can tell, I can talk about this stuff for years.
2: And 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 so can we. Well, we could talk about it all day, but mm. but we've got to stick to a, a time frame on the podcast because. Uh, uh, but no, it's been really interesting. And uh, look, well, I'll, I've still got, like I said before, I have got your Rusted Off book, which is halfway through. Uh, I did like the bit about the lion dancing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyways, but anyone, anyone who's listening, uh, if you haven't already got the book, you should buy it. And your new book, the uh, what the uh, the fig. Why wax, you should give w- a thing w- about why farming? Why should give farming? Uh, definitely, I'll be looking forward to getting that when it when it comes out.
0: Wasn't it why you give a fa- fuck farming? Oh no, we're not going <laughs> to say that.
1: <laughs> Andrew's mother. Think oh, of Andrew's right. mother. Oh
2: Matt, I don't oh that, that, that Matt <laughs> that was,
0: he's a bad boy. Sorry Mrs. sorry, Mrs. Whitelaw. Sorry, Mrs. Whitelaw. <laughs> right Oh, Well
2: thanks for thanks for coming along, Gabby. Pleasure. I was uh, so good. Re- really enjoyed it and we'll we'll get you on again soon. And uh, we'll we'll go from there. Thanks, Gabby.
0: See you when you're gonna have nine, everyone. See you when you get
2: 9. Thank you. Ciao for now.